Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hey, you two. Hey. Yo. Here's a question for you. What is your love language? Do you have physical a love t- language? Physical touch all I the mean, way. Like <laughs> no, and words of affirmation. Physical uh, touch and words of affirmation, yeah, yes. I, yeah. Just I tell me I'm great and give me a head rub. Mine is, um, yeah, mine's in a clean kitchen. A clean Act kitchen. service. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I I hear that. I think which people- I think is like very. I mean, not to get too like gender this and that, but like I feel like I don't know. I've, what 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 are you saying? Typical. Sarah? I mean, I feel like for men, it's like you know physical touch, and for women, it's like oh my god, do I have to vacuum or are you gonna vacuum? You know, like I feel I don't know, but maybe well, I'm gonna, wrong. We're gonna talk about the love languages. I think mine is words of affirmation you're it's just totally you think yours is words of affirmation <laughs> you guys are both like definitely need some affirmation so yeah please tell me i'm good enough <laughs> i told you guys how every time i tell jamie how great she is now wonder how beautiful she is she's like oh honey do you need affirmation is that why you're affirming me right now because you're giving what you need i'm yeah. like shut yeah, up yeah, shut yeah. up <laughs> well maybe like, uh how do i look is exactly but seriously how do i look <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, well, how are you guys doing? Uh, after we'll, we'll come back to love languages, I promise. Um, what's what's going on? Uh, back to school, back to life. Praise God. Praise, Praise God. God. Kids are back in school. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is it going? My smooth, wife, who's smoothly? an introvert, is very happy. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. A, a moment to herself. Yes, it's very good. Sarah, any calls from the principal yet? Not yet. <laughs> We've had several nosebleeds as our daughter is a chronic nosebleeder, um, mm-hmm. which is like very dramatic, but um, no calls from the principal yet. So still a lot of time left in the year though. Yeah, I know. I mean, a lot of Lord. time. I feel like, he, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I had hoped I'd, we'd aged out of the calls from the principal thing, but um, definitely last, not. last year proved me definitively yeah, wrong. Definitely not. Uh, we have a, we have a, a right now a, a, a six-year-old who started kindergarten and is uh, about to start kung fu today. So oh. the, that, that's some. I, I told. Um, don't cross him. I know. Don't watch out. Kung, do they call it kung fu? They do. I was like, do we have a karate place or jujitsu so or something? They're like, no, we all we have in this town is kung fu. Kung so, fu. Uh, it could be that you know. Uh, I mean, I've watched Cobra Kai. It could be that like uh, certain towns have certain loyalties to various schools of martial arts. I don't know, but of in this course. town, it's kung fu or get out. You know, Charlottesville's a kung fu town. <laughs> I, I would like... not let my oh no, not let Marshall take martial arts. He's violent I enough. Mean... Like he's he's good enough at inflicting pain. He doesn't know. He's doesn't like need armed to know and better. dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. I just think kung fu is like the funnest phrase to say in a southern accent. So I'm <laughs> envious that every week y'all kung have to fu. be like, who's taking him to kung fu? You know? <laughs> well, that's happening. Insert um, diphthong here. Yeah. Do you guys feel like you're, how's the grind? Are you back to full speed of work? I mean, I think this 
this time of year is just is the busiest for me because you know it's all it's an influx of new students which is so great I love them it's awesome I'm so happy to have them but also like I want to get to know them and I want to schedule coffees and I want to schedule lunches and so you know that can be a little bit um relentless but I mean that's you know that's you know this work Dave, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, it's super important in the beginning. So, um, I'm loving it. I got through the club fair, which, which is my least favorite event of my lifetime. Maybe honestly. Um, yeah, really bad, uh, parents funeral club fair. Oh, no, no. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> because, uh, it's just such an intense experience. All the ministries are like shoved into a corner. You feel like you're competitive, with every student that walks through and uh, my student who was in charge of registering us for it, forgot to register us. Oh, there's a insect, so, which go. like I have like a whole, you know, I've got like my wagon full of stuff. Like, and the woman who's running it, she's like, well, I can get you in, but I can't put you with the other ministries. And I was like, this sounds amazing. <laughs> so to the right of us, we had rice radio. So the people Ooh. who run the race, which was like, so cool they I'm were in. so cool and then Sign to the left of us we had people who are from or are fans of the country of brazil Perfect. and i was like how do we get this corner. spot every time yes yeah. I'm, say, I'm never Sarah. gonna sign up ever again which one of so these is know, which one of these is like, not like the others or i'm not perhaps, learning good lessons here this is very you know what i mean this is very helpful so. i think you were in the the perfect spot it I mean, was i love great. that when someone like makes a mistake or drops the ball and it's better than it would have been otherwise yeah. that's just such a moment of like falling upwards you know it's like 100%. such a moment of grace because you know? i've been dreading oh. this all morning and then i'm like and it was we got to sit outside under a tent i was like god is taking good care of my neurotic ass this morning you know what i mean like my word i do not deserve this so. but sarah you you guys do have an extra layer of pain you have to walk through i cannot believe uh, I hope I'm saying this right, or that you also have a parents club fair, like where parents we of college do. students come around and yes. sign them up. What? For we that do. strikes me as uh, for I themselves know. or for their kids. Who are they signing up? For their kids. There They're must be a good reason up. that this is happening because I haven't heard of this it's anywhere. Like, isn't else. this why your kids went to college to I get mean, away from it's you? It's a vibe. It's a vibe. That and is also, so like, weird. I just don't think any parents that sign their kids up that their kid for especially for a ministry you know what i mean yeah that the kids are gonna be like here's where i'm gonna go like i just i mean maybe but yeah um are there separate sheets for parents sign up and students sign up no, or they're, they're it's the same two different sheet. club fairs. Okay, yeah. so maybe they just take all the paper from the parent club fair and just throw it away immediately. <laughs> it's like, we're going to give you the illusion of control, and now this will go straight into That's the garbage amazing. can. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, RJ, I hope so. How's it going for you guys so far? Is any, are you are you working hard? Is it is it like major church program season? The luge of uh, so that's what someone here calls it the luge. Like September, you just get on and you just kind of mm. shoot through the month. Um, how are you? How's I feel it going? a little bit that way. Yeah, especially as we said last time, coming into our first normal year, and I'm kind of I want to tr- tr- do a lot of things and try a lot of things, and I'm kind of worried that maybe I've bit off more than I can chew. Mm. So ask. Me, ask me in December how I'm doing. Okay. Let's see how it all how it all pans out. Um, yeah, definitely back back in the grind. And uh, as I was saying before we got on, I you know I, I just I don't know if anyone else feels like this. I'm such a mystery to myself. Like yesterday, had got up early, had a great day, felt productive, felt peaceful, happy, got a good night's sleep, and today woke up and I'm just like blah. 
You know what I, I mean? Like how, how some days are like, yes. you feel totally motivated and hopeful yes. and excited. And then the next day you just want to stay in bed and you're like, why? Like why? I, yes. I, 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 there's no no reason I can point to hmm. that that explains this. So, but but today's you know today today's another day. Yeah. You know, I've done enough therapy to be mindful and just say, okay, I'll feel different in an hour, or maybe in That's five so, minutes, or tomorrow, I mean, like, or who knows? You know. Literally before I got on, I was thinking like it's crazy. Like I feel pretty positive today. Like yes, and then I'm right? like cheering Praise myself, God. I'm like. I'm like, okay, Go you. chemistry, way to show <laughs> Check up. Check you out. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. But honestly, hey, RJ, same, tomorrow could be just abysmal. So who knows? No who idea. knows what tomorrow yeah. will bring? Mm-mm. At least you don't yeah. have to do a parents, uh, you know, uh, activity fair. Uh, it's just true. Think no, I just signed up my son for afternoon activities five days a week yesterday, and now I don't need to worry about it. So he, <laughs> he does what I tell him to do because he's six. Well, I talk about work because there was this uh, incredible newsletter sent to uh, it's a New York Times newsletter written by Peter Coy, is written, sent to us by uh, listener Karen Greer um, about work, labor, and morality, and it's uh, used a phrase that uh, that I think is very like you know applicable to our interests. Yeah, can, well, can I say something? The Queen of England just died, just oh, right oh. now. The Queen what? of England just died right now. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just noticing in real time. Yeah, the, I just saw the queen. queen the queen just, just queen just died. Queen oh, just died. Yeah. yeah. Which Best. I'm not British, but it feels like I don't know. Feels like a thing. Anyway, it's a thing. We're Episcopalians. I watched the, cr- I watched totally the Crown, thing. and it, she's been such a. Um, I, gosh, I don't have. I don't feel like I've got much to say except for she. The uh, in the Crown, she sure seems pretty. She uh, seems special. amazing in the and, Crown. <laughs> I mean, right. I. I would say, honestly, as an ordained woman, like having her having Ooh. a queen has always yeah. been very meaningful to me as sort of this figurehead in the church. So, I mean, really? for me, like that's like that's a genuine sadness for me. And I'll say as an ordained person, you know, and Dave, your father talks all the time about transference. You know, you want to talk somebody to, about somebody who knows about transference. <laughs> you know, yeah. the queen is like 100 percent transference and i've i've just felt sort of badly for her because i feel like she's doing everything she can to carry out her duties with kind of grace and and restraint and a sense of duty and sacrifice and yet she you know live mm. is living in the 21st century where like nothing is a secret at all yeah. nothing is ever yeah. a secret i've always you know? found and her to be in this interesting relic of a different time um totally. yeah. but she carries herself with such you know quiet dignity and, and graceful yeah. bearing and she always she does talk about god quite a bit in those addresses i think she's a genuine believer i mean I how could you not be in that yeah. position you know yeah. i mean i guess you could be a tyrant but she doesn't seem like a tyrant and when you have that much responsibility how could you not you know, believe in something much bigger than yourself. So, well, you watch that great. show, and what comes across is the the sheer weight of responsibility, whether you want it or not, whether you like the system, the monarchy system or not. She had to, uh, um, you know, her her life was not her own, and uh, yeah. the, like really early, the weight of expectation and never mess up, never false or like uh, a false move. Um, if anyone and she could, found a way to bear it somehow, somehow, it would seem. Yeah. You know? Gosh. Well, hey, impromptu. I, I had no idea that that had happened. And so now I'm going to uh, move from... We're going to segue seamlessly. Segue into back into work. This is... A, yeah, perfect. A amazing Good. newsletter that Karen Greer, a listener from in Waco, uh, sent us. Um, and it was... It, Peter Coy wrote it. He says, in textbook economics, leisure is the good stuff and work is the necessary evil. 
Uh, so how have so many humans reached the point where they accept that even miserable, unnecessary work is actually morally superior to no work at all? And um, Coy goes on to reflect on a smart piece of psychological research that he recently uh, came across called the moralization of effort. Our brains today are wired to perceive effort as evidence of morality. Uh, he then lists about an experiment where participants were told about two fictitious people who do a job equally well. They do it exact, they, they execute it equally well. One finds it easy and the other finds it hard. And yet, in everywhere this experiment took place, people rated the person who had put in more effort to get the job done as more moral. The researchers also found that participants rated people as more moral and trustworthy when they had to try harder to complete a running workout. So someone who ran a marathon for charity was perceived as morally superior to one who ran only a 5K for charity. Note that requiring people to run a marathon before giving money to charity of their choice is oddly punitive. While the work is good mindset may have had evolutionary advantages, it can backfire in the modern world, the authors contend. Millions of workers may signal moral worth through structured drudgery. Uh, we fear it has also created harmful incentive structures that reward workaholism and joyless devotion to mundane efforts that produce little value beyond the signal of effortful engagement. The moralization of effort. Is someone a better person if they work hard, even if their work is like, you know, the exact same in, in, its, in its impact as someone else who doesn't work as hard? Like, what do you think? I mean, there is a parable about this. <laughs> Why don't we hear it? You're talking about the workers in the vineyard? It's the workers in the vineyard. I mean, like, this is, you know, one set shows up, they work all day, another set rolls in. I don't remember. RJ, come on, you're a Bible guy. Was it like 10 till or something? They're supposed to leave. You're doing great. Keep it going. And, uh, and they all get paid the same. And it, I mean, that, that parable enrages people, you Oof. know, in, in 2022. I mean, it's so... Um, it's the, yeah, it's the it's, demoralization of effort almost, but although I, I don't yeah. think like it's even he even Jesus un un, un like unhinges it uh, from uh, from results too. I mean, it's like yeah. we don't yeah. even know. Maybe they maybe the people that got paid the same had just paltry results compared to the ones who got got the job done. Right, RJ, what do you think? Well, it brought up a couple things to mind. One is you know. It's just sort of vignette, but the story of, you know, the person who gets locked out of their apartments, they call the, uh, the locksmith and he says it'll be, you know, $200, $250 or whatever to let you in. He comes over and lets the guy in in like five minutes. He's like, what? $250? He's like, and the locksmith was like, yeah, I'm really good at my job. Would you have rather that took an hour? You know, would you feel better if it had taken me an hour to get you in your apartment rather than five minutes? You know, yes. that that's somehow, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've had that experience with a locksmith where I'm like, I'm sorry, sir, how much do I owe you? You were here for three and a half minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he's just. I wanted to stand outside for an hour. He's got to, yeah. now we should all go be uh, locksmiths, you know, that's two right. 250 that's for three minutes away. of work. Um, it also reminds me of Tim Kreider, who wrote a great essay called Work a Manifesto, mm -hmm. where he, he, you know, he said, yes, we live in America, which has this Protestant uh, work ethic, and the Puritans were beginning to work, but like, let's remember that work was a curse, which was laid on Adam and Eve after mm -hmm. they got kicked out of the garden, right? Mm -hmm. In the garden, they didn't really have to do much of anything, and then they get out of the garden, it's like, now you'll till the soil, now right. it'll produce thorns, now you're, now you're going to have to work to sort of, uh, you know, earn your keep, whereas before you just went over and picked a piece of fruit off the tree and ate it, apparently. 
you know, and and studies have shown that um, people that was in, seen that that was not actually less moral, you know, that was, no, it was more moral. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. And studies have been done uh, which show that people in hunter-gatherer societies um, spend a lot less time working than people in agrarian societies because apparently you can gather everything you need to eat for a day in like two or three hours, and then the rest of the time you're like hanging out, telling stories, you know, uh, weaving baskets, like you know, make, what doing whatever you're doing. Just kind I of love all your ideas. Just kind of just kind of live in life. What you think they did? You know, I don't know. But I'm studies about a lot this. of baskets They're, being sure, a lot of basket sure. weaving exactly um, but then the last thing is it it just completely reminds me of uh, Carl Hall you know and the reconstruction of uh, morality which if you have not read if you're if you're a you know professional christian type go read Carl Hall's reconstruction of morality hmm. where he talks about Martin Luther and how one of the revolutions that that Martin Luther sort of brought about was previous to him the catholic scholastics um, who were very interested in, in, in details and, you know, they're, they're the sort of how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin type people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what the scholastic said was that the moral weight of an action was equivalent to the effort it took to um, undertake it. Right? So the harder it was to be good, the harder it was to do something, the more willpower you had to summon to do it, the more God cared about it, the more mm-hmm. moral it was. And Luther said, no, it's the exact opposite that the moral weight of an action is probably equivalent to its spontaneity. Because to the degree which you do it thoughtlessly, it probably is actually coming out of a place of love and hope and faith and the Holy Spirit. And so it's not coming from your own sense of needing to earn something or, or be worth something. It's or just coming from love. Something. Yeah. yeah. And so probably God is more likely to be in the spontaneous good action than he is to be in the, uh, the uh, sort of willpower, you know, willful good action. And it seems like a, a pretty direct link here between this article and what Carl Hull and Martin Luther said. Wow. It reminds me so much of, I don't know, sorry, this is like not exactly what the article is, but it reminds me of like different parenting styles and how some people are like really disciplinarians in a pretty harsh way with their kids. And some people are more gentle and just like the... I don't know the the results that that produces when things are are handled more lightly. Just like thanks be to God that like you know thanks be to God because like we are all late to the vineyard, right? Yes. I mean, I just yeah. I I I love work. I think work's really important. I mean, my husband's always like, "You're nicer when you have a job." Um, <laughs> You know, because because otherwise I'm just sort of obsessing about his job or obsessing about it's you know, good to something have something else. to do. It's good to have something to do. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and there are plenty of people who stay home with their kids who have lots to do. Um, but you know, for me to have a place to go and, you know, a vocation to live into is like a huge gift. I do think about people I know, you know, in the corporate world that, that function in companies that really do believe, you know, in, in sort of the, the moralization of, of the work that they're doing. And that's kind of preached at them in a secular way and how inescapable that is and how painful that is, you know? Yeah. There's a a total, I think, correlation between, uh, you know, mental health in a lot of, in a lot of, in a lot of places. And this idea that the harder you work, the more you deserve what you receive. And also like, um, the better you are as a person, like there's a competition of who's grinding harder, like who's, who, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm busier than thou. Like it's that, it's that sense, especially within a corporate ladder. I mean, 
I, I think about it always in terms of like, um, you know, high school or something like that, where you had the person who like something came really effortlessly to, but was really good, yeah. at, good at, and, and then the person who really worked hard and got good results too. And, but I was sort of always the person who had to work really hard, or at least mm-hmm. I felt that. And I resented the people who are naturally gifted. And yet I, I look at that and I think to myself, um, that w- hard work and that earning mentality bred resentment. You know, it didn't breed like so beautiful sure. accomplishments. It kind of like, why I, I don't like myself. I want to be more like that person. Cause ultimately mm-hmm. you sort of do want to be the person to whom things come naturally. Even if you've been told your whole life, well, hard work is important and it pays off and it builds character, yada, yada, yada. I was mm-hmm. like, well, I'd still rather be the person that seems to pick up the golf club and swings it really well without any effort. And I'm watching it now with other kids, by the way. Like you see, you see not only in like math and English and writing and stuff, you see little kids who pick up soccer or kick right. or kung fu. And they're just like, <laughs> they have a natural capability at it. And you, you almost, I don't know, the, the sense of fairness is, is deeply um, correlated here. And I think that's why the jump to the workers in the vineyard is like so natural, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll bring a little Bible in, a little Paul. Um, you know, Ephesians uh, 2, I think it's 8, 9, and 10. There, 2, 8, 9 is that great passage, for, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's not the result of work, so that no one may boast. But then right after that he says, for we are God's workmanship, uh, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I think that's a good mm-hmm. theology of work, right? That like, with, there's a big difference between seeing work as something that, you, we all got to have something to do, right? Or we're all going to yeah. go a little bit crazy, you yeah. know? So it's a gift in that sense. It's like, okay, the, the battle's been won. I'm headed to heaven. It's all going to be fine. But I still got to sort of have something to do, which God gave me to do, so I might as well do it. Versus work is the way that I justify my existence. <laughs> you know, yeah. and those are two vastly different ways to look at work. And I will confess that I definitely fall into the latter category um, sort of in my day-to-day life uh, more often than I, I wish I would. But if I could see work as you know, oh, this is a, God's given me something to do, so I'm not bored and anxious all the time, hmm. as opposed to uh, this is a way that I, I prove my worth. That's so good. I love that. Yeah. Like, I need to write that down. God's given me something to do, so I'm not bored and anxious all the time. <laughs> Was it? That- that's a great, I mean, that's like work at its like best iteration. I I, I mean, I've, I I hear this like in the middle of like a very, very intense work season for me uh, as mm-hmm. When this comes out, my my book, Low Anthropology, is is out next week, and I'm going to read amazing part of it. We're and so I'm, excited. I'm, I'm, September I'm very, 13th. <laughs> it's 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 a lot, you know. To um, what's required of an author these days is not only to write and to use words and to edit and to refine, <clears throat> but then to sort of promote and to be a brand and to that to make reels to make reels. Apparently, that's what David I've been told. Yes, Zoll. I just made yes. a, I just made another incredible just, reel today. Oh my god, I can't wait to see C- it. close up of Dave's face. Uh, the promotional <laughs> it is quite close, yeah. but I like it. Okay, I mean, <laughs> you can you count the nose hairs? Is it you know? <laughs> Get it all out right now, because I, okay. I, need, I need words of affirmation after this, okay? Oh. Uh, you know, the, the promotional cycle can be quite alienating. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, Just use that shot of you and your sons at the waterfall. That's all you need. That's all the promotion you need. Uh, you know, when you're looking like uh, Chris Pratt, you know, mm. post-Guardians of the Galaxy, Chris That's Pratt. That's the one, Dave. That's the promo shot you I need, Dave. I don't know about that. <laughs> 
Not now. now. <laughs> affirmation over. Uh, <laughs> let's get to the words of affirmation. Well, I say that because I'm working so hard and grinding so hard, and I sometimes yeah. feel like you know ha- whether this book does well or not is the, it. I can sort of make try to get make sure people have heard about it and do the things I'm told to do, but like whether it does well is not really correlated to my efforts you know it's just like yeah. all sorts of anytime you hear about a book doing well or any kind of like uh, a lot of businesses too you know some fluky thing happens mm-hmm. and um you know uh, it, it gets on shark tank or it gets the mm-hmm. uh, oprah tweets about it i don't know what it is but like something random and everyone's like what how did that happen um and how do we replicate it how do we replicate it and now <laughs> yeah. it's been yeah, yeah. So I needed to hear this uh, moralization of effort news. Um, and I also need to hear about love languages because <laughs> is work a love language? Acts of service are a love language. This is related to the New York Times did a, checked in with um, Gary Chapman, who came up with the, the five love languages and that whole uh, conceptual schema. Alicia Haridasani Gupta wrote a uh, article called The Sixth Love Language Doesn't Exist. Uh, she writes, There was a time when the words love and language were rarely combined and certainly not used as a standalone noun. Uh, then, three decades ago, Gary Chapman, a 50-year-old Southern Baptist pastor, introduced the concept to the world in his seminal book, The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. He wrote in that book, your emotional love language and the language of your spouse may be as different as Chinese from English. No matter how hard you try to express your love in English, if your spouse understands only Chinese, you will never understand how to love each other. Uh, Dr. Chapman based the five love languages on anecdotal evidence he found while working as a marriage counselor at his church for more than 20 years. And as we've already alluded to, the five love languages are words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and yes, RJ, physical touch. In the years since the book was published, the term love languages has evolved into a cultural phenomenon and shorthand for anything that brings a person joy. Um, I'm as surprised <laughs> as you. Anything at all. Anything. <laughs> my love language. (laughs) Tacos are my love language. I'm as surprised as you are, Chapman said in a recent interview. But he doesn't think anyone has actually discovered that sixth love language yet. He said, "Uh, all the memes that I come across are more like dialects of the original five. You know, the sixth love language is chocolate. Well, if they bought it, it's a gift. If they made it, it's an act of service. I'm not dogmatic, but I think most of the ways of expressing love fit into one of these fives. He then talks about the eureka moment he had with his wife when they were young married. He said, I would tell my wife how nice she looked, how much I appreciated everything she did, and I would tell her over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you. But one night she said to me, you keep saying I love you, but if you love me, why don't you help me? (laughs) Mm. Um, He noticed that couples who had sought his help at church seemed to be having the same problem. They did not know how to express love in a way that the other person appreciated. And uh, that's how he developed this. Now, there's criticism of the love languages. Julie Gottman, for example, the the relational uh, uh, authority, uh, said that the categories uh, in her mind are superficial and rigid, and that people are much more flexible than they are given credit for in love languages. But I loved this towards the end of the article. They talked to a, a, a psychotherapist named Dr. Gowalnik 
uh, to her, the five categories themselves are not as important as what the overall theory signals to people that, quote, their own frame of mind is not the way their partner is processing things. Yes. Oh, I like that. I mean, I think that's, I've kind of always like, like, like when people bring up love languages, just because I guess it's not my love language to talk about love languages. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's like too, it's too, it's over the line. You know, it's too Methodist. I don't know. And I mean, I found it as Baptist, but RJ's making a face at me, but y'all know what I mean. It's just too like, ugh. Formulaic, it's too, uh, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, just, ugh. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I've softened a lot of that stuff in my old age. But um, I do think there, like, when I hear all the categories, I mean, I love this idea that, like, people fit into different ones. I think people fit into different ones at different points in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really just, like, teaching us that we're not the main character in our marriage. Yes. Right. I mean, that's all it is, you know, and that, that we're considering. Which is something that a lot of people need to feeling. hear. You know, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I need. If you to think hear marriage it, is about know? sort of personal fulfillment, you know, which you know, yeah. in, in the best case scenario, it is. It's sort of it's fulfillment and sacrifice, sort of both both ways. But if you think it's sort of yeah. this other person exists to sort of perfectly fulfill all your needs all the time, you know, and will know how to do so, then it's helpful right. to be like, well, maybe they don't know how to. And maybe you actually don't know how to either, and you just need to right get a little more curious, as our marriage therapist yeah. used to say. Yeah. Yeah. A little I think more that's a curious. good word. I, yeah. well, I think it's, it, you can sort of tie it into um, all aspects, I think, of like personality tests, which are so popular. I mean, we, we talk about the mm-hmm. Enneagram all the time. Um, and Does anyone here I, like I read, the Enneagram? Does anyone, is anyone on board? Okay. I love the Enneagram. <laughs> well, what's I've already tried to not talk about it several times on this episode. So. Well, anyway. think about it. I mean, the love languages is a precursor to that. And, and the, sure. the reason people have a hard time with the Enneagram, I think, is the reason people have a hard time with the love languages. It's like, well, I'm not just, just one of these things. Sometimes I'm... Yeah. I'm, I, I, at different times, maybe there's some parts of my nature that are fixed, but I, 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 even if you're a person who values quality time, it doesn't mean that you don't also value, you know words of affirmation or something like that. Like, sure. And I, I don't think, it doesn't sound like Chapman's saying that, but how about I read to the two of you from Low Anthropology. Ooh. Oh. This is, Thank God. I thought you were going to read from the Love Languages book. I was like, please don't. Okay. This is a section in page 161 called Confessions of an Enneagram Type 3 ENFJ Taurus. Oh, a Taurus. <laughs> Everywhere I look today, I see Enneagram numbers and Myers-Briggs code. Uh, introvert bingo cards, which member of BTS are you quizzes, handbooks for Geminis and Pisces, and so on. A typology obsession is how a friend described it after a trip to a local bookstore. Most of these taxonomies are fun. Some are helpful. All of them are geared toward making sense of ourselves and the world around us. Life is confusing, and so we look for classification systems to help us cope. But I wonder if we're looking for more than just the clarity of categories when we urge our preferred personality test on everyone we meet. It could be we are looking for a common language of acceptance. A way to say, I'm not as rude as my mother always implied, I'm just an introvert in a family full of extroverts. Such a discovery would be a relief to someone who has never felt like they fit, and it might help their loved ones love them better. Friends of mine swear that their marriage improved dramatically after they read about one another's birth order profile. Unfortunately, what starts out as a tool of acceptance in the hands of low anthropology people can become a tool for self-justification. 
I didn't mean to ignore your feelings or steamroll your input. I'm just an Enneagram 8. Uh, you can't blame me for acting so hastily. This is just how ESFPs are wired. As much self-acceptance as the schemas may engender, the illusion of a fixed nature gives us an excuse for bad behavior. There is a reason that the word typecasting has such a negative connotation. Labels so often become cages, even the ones we choose for ourselves. A low anthropology frees us from those cages by means of generous self-skepticism. It understands that labels have limited utility at best and can be actively harmful at worst. In this way, a low anthropology tills the soil for true self-acceptance. When I no longer expect myself or others to be consistent or consistently admirable, I might stop resenting them for failing to be so. Instead, a low anthropology locates the foundation of our identity in our weakness. It dispenses with the endless worried quest to find yourself, or at least it reconceives such quests as play rather than purpose. Mm. A low anthropologist knows you cannot be more yourself than you already are. That's so good, Dave. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to read this. <laughs> well, I think the love languages stuff sort of fits into that a little bit, does it not? Like the the sort of need to separate the world into, you know, categories to make it more manageable. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, the thing I keep thinking about is, um, and I sent you a text about this, Dave, but is... I think the categories don't just feel like they limit us. I think as a Christian, they feel like they limit God mm. because we don't really know what oh, I hate saying the phrase love language, <laughs> what love language we need at any point in time. And, you know, I think about, I would have never said the gift of presence or spending time together was like important to me on some level. I don't think that would have occurred to me until you know, mom and dad died and my husband just sat with me for like months, you know, like he would move any work thing he could home. He would, you know, make sure like he had put food in front of me. I mean, he just, you know, I, I, um, it's funny. I've been watching the, I have watched actually two really trashy, great, uh, dating shows. Mm. One of which is based on astrology. And let me tell you, it don't work. <laughs> and the other one is Indian matchmaker. And, you know, it, it's for both these couples. It's this constant or, or both, both sort of casts of these two be couples. It's this constant conversation about soulmates. You know, well, this person's meant to be my soulmate, or I just want to find my soulmate, or I just want to, you know, and then it's like, we're going to be a power couple. Like, I just want to find somebody to be a power couple with. And it's like, you, first of all, I don't even know what a power couple means. Like, give me a break, and you're not the main character in the planet, you know? Mm -hmm. But also, like, soulmates don't, you don't get a soulmate until you've suffered together. Mm. Like that's, you know what I mean? And so I think that's part of the troubling thing with some of these categories is it just, it, it limits us. It limits God. It feels like we get to be in charge of something we're not in charge of at all. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. We think that freedom and peace are going to come by figuring out who we are or defining ourselves, but that's not, and I, I, you know, in my heart, that's what I think too. If I could just understand, if sure. I could just understand why I felt so great yesterday and I don't feel so great yes. today, <laughs> then, exactly. then I'll be happy and I'll be at peace. And it's like, well, or, uh, or the other solution is each day has enough trouble of its own. 
you know, mm-hmm. so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given unto you as well. And stop worrying so much mm-hmm. about who you are or who someone else is because those the categories do feel like liberation and mercy at first, but they can very quickly be turned into sort of judgment. And yeah, that's what I was trying to say in yeah. that passage. Yeah. Exactly. You said it. You said, you said it. Exactly. You exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those yeah. words of just, reiter- <laughs> just reiterating what you already said. Yeah. I like the new sandwiches at Subway, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, throwback right there, callback. Um, well, can I read you guys a passage about RJ in the in the um, please? Oh God. a great passage. Here we and go. I, you ready for it? I, I have no idea. Probably not. But I've got my tissue. Na- I'm ready. Okay, go. I don't name you. All I right, don't cool. name you. Oh, we just by... did. <laughs> well, well, I mean, <laughs> hey, you got to have some bonuses. I've been told, you know, you just have to give people exclusives. Now you know, everyone. Oh. On page seventy-one, the pastor of whom I speak is Rutger Jan Heyman. Oh, God. Oh, Rutger Jan. This is what it says. This is a passage. Okay. I'll never forget what a clergy friend of mine once told me. We hadn't seen each other for a few years, not since we had both left New York. He had served there as a pastor of a small, underfunded church. It had been his first real post after graduating from seminary, and when he arrived, my buddy was brimming with confidence and optimism. There had been moments of joy, but when he finally left the city, it was more of a tail-between-the-legs situation than a choice. I remember wondering aloud to my wife whether she thought he would stay in church work for the long haul. He had really taken a beating. The city can do that to people, as can the church. Mm. At our reunion, I noticed right off the bat how rejuvenated he seemed. His wife gushed about how well the new job was going. The church was packed, a new building was in the works, you name it. Most of all, I could tell my friend was deeply engaged on a spiritual level. I asked him what accounted for the change. He laughed and without skipping a beat told me, Dave, the honest truth is I've gained a lot more compassion and patience for people since I realized that everyone is pretty much insane, myself included. <laughs> <laughs> you remember saying that? You've said I that do. on this podcast. I do. I've heard I you say that, that before. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is pretty much insane. I laughed. I'll keep going. I laughed hard. I knew he was overstating for effect, but what he meant was that in a few key areas, human beings tend to act in ways that seem obtuse, counterproductive, and just wrongheaded. Once you accept that fact, you stand a chance of loving them. You may even find that you want to serve them. Barring this realization, you will bang your head against a wall. Why won't they do what I tell them? And eventually melt down or burn out. You may come to resent the people you've been entrusted to shepherd. The same holds true for any number of settings and vocations, managerial or otherwise. Pastors may have a leg up in this arena, though, since one of the greatest and earliest descriptions of this truth comes from the Bible. In his letter to the Romans, Paul articulates this uh, second pillar of a low anthropology with monumental clarity. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I could keep on going, but I thought it'd be fun to read that section about RJ. Yeah. We were sitting in a, in a restaurant in Houston when you, when, you, when you laid that zinger on me. I don't know if you recall it. I don't remember I don't what know the if I do place either. was, but it was a really good place. And Jamie yeah. had just been gushing. And I was like, who are these people? <laughs> <That's> so <laughs> They're awesome. so much happier than they used to be. Yeah. yeah. That was a good season. That was nice. Tell yeah. us what you mean by that, though. Is, is a low anthropology a key to loving people, RJ? Absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, a hundred percent, and and even believe, you know, we talk about the bondage of the will on this podcast. The idea that people, you're not as free as you wish you were. Other people are not as free as they wish they were. People make irrational choices all the time. Uh, yourself included, your spouse included, your kids included, and if you're expecting people to be rational, um, then you're just going to be disappointed. You know, all the time. All the time. It's you're like a, a missionary. I remember I, I said this in a sermon a few weeks ago, like a missionary who worked overseas for 20 years, 20, 30 years said, you know, if you go into missionary work or any kind of mission, you know, ministry work, because you love people so much, you're not going to last very long because people are difficult. Yeah. You know, you go in because Jesus loves them and because Jesus loves you you know, insane sinner that you are, um, you know, and maybe you have a little grace and mercy to, uh, to offer. So um, I agree with that. And I also think, I think your, did your dad say something about, um, you know, our understanding of justification by faith is directly in relationship to, to our defensiveness. You know, the, the mm-hmm. more we understand grace, the less defensive we will, you know, will be because people, you know, attacks are going to come all the time. You know, but the more you understand people and the more you understand grace, the less personally you take them. You know, the more you start to say, um, you know, well, I I remember talking to Paul Walker one time and I asked him how he was doing. And he's like, well, you know, I'm just working really hard to make everything about me, to take everything as personally as I possibly can. And he was joking, but we tend to do that, right? We we, yeah. we we talk to somebody who's not in a good mood, who's having a rough day, and our first thought is, what did I do? Are they mad at yeah. me? How is this my yeah. fault? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, how is this going to impact me? And mm. um, so, yeah, what are they? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. But people, when, when you talk about, I mean, I'm already dealing with the fact that people think this is you suck the book. And um, <laughs> it, that's not what's... Which would have been a great title. Yeah. <laughs> I, I quipped that... That'll be the it's, musical. It's, it's you are just as real as everyone else. And that's good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a book that's necessarily, that's actually that pessimistic. I think that the, the it, it, it's, a, it's a book that opens you up to awe and wonder. Because I think a low anthropology l- looks at life from... From the perspective of like the the through line in that, that bonds me to you is not our shared values or our strengths even, but it's our shared experience of loss. Yes, it's our um, you know our, our our failure to 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 be to live up to any of our virtues or our values. Like that's what, and that's where I yeah. find I love other people. And so ultimately, though, that, that creates a situation which, okay, we're surrounded by hurt and pain and sin and self-centeredness and conflict and all this stuff. And yet, beautiful and incredible things happen with alarming frequency. And that just leaves you in awe rather than like disappointed that better stuff doesn't happen more often. I mean, it, it really is like, wow, to be a person in God's world is to deal with a whole lot of suffering and pain and the weight of other people's, but also be bear witness to the fact that good things happen with all the time. Yes. Right. I mean, I, I think the difference for me is, and it's, it really is two different ways of functioning as a religious person is, are, am I always looking for people to rise to my expectations, myself included, um, which means I'm constantly disappointed or am I, or I'm, do I wake up on a random Tuesday morning? I'm like, look at what God does. Hmm. You know, I mean, that's, that's the difference is like, 
if we're not expecting much out of ourselves or each other, like, I think there's freedom there, you know? And, and, and that's so scary for people because like everyone wants to feel like, like, you know, they're earning it and they're doing it. And like, they're, or the world will fall apart without accountability. Yeah. And like, I, um, the, you know, it's the ground is all level at the foot of the cross. So it's just such low anthropology is really, for me, you know, it was the reason I came to Mockingbird and cause it was like Aaron Zimmerman gave a talk and he talked about low anthropology and I was like, Oh my gosh, I've never heard this phrase before. Yale. And <laughs> it's so compelling and I find so much freedom in it. And, you know, it continues to just, um, to make my heart sing. So that's so, that's interesting. Cause I, you know, I've, I've, I was been very cognizant of the book feeling like a downer and, um, you know, that's why the cover's so upbeat, and I tried to use as much humor as I could. And I, You're doing reels. I'm doing reels. I'm being approachable. Yeah. Dave, you know, come. Uh, <laughs> He's fun. <laughs> the, uh, but I was talking to a person. I talked to, like, two different people. And we've a wonderful colleague in my office, Mary Lou Thomas. Is, um, she's in her late 60s, and she's lived a lot of life. And I gave her the book early because I've she's been a real lifesaver to me personally. And um, I said, well, how do you like it? Is it, is it got you depressed? She's like, are you kidding? Every page I feel better. <laughs> like, I, I'm not the only one who deals with this sort of stuff. And I think, thank you, Mary Lou. And But the way yeah. that we respond to low anthropology and the way that we've seen it happen, like if you do grow up with a sort of like a uh, uh, you know, a really oppressive form of sort of, you are a sinner, you are terrible. Um, you have an allergy to that kind of talk and you think it's the source of all shame. When in fact, what's really the source of shame in that respect is that you are a sinner and you have it within yourself to somehow not be mm. like, yeah. that's the real, that's the defeating thing. That's Get the shameful together. thing. The, yeah. if, but if you're a person like the, the, the context that I grew up in, and I think I could probably speak for RJ was this kind of a, what is now called like coastal elitism, where we were told that we were all really special and fantastic and like reach for the stars and um, the world's your oyster. And then like when you grew up and you're like, I didn't say none of that to me. I got a lot of that in, in prep schools and, uh, you know, a lot of perfectionism. Corn, don't talk about death. Don't talk about, you know, real <laughs> sin. Mississippi public school is just like, don't get pregnant. We're not going to tell you how that happened, <laughs> but just don't do it. To that, to, in that context, I hear like people who, grew up in that world the perfectionism yeah. world of like uh, you know have it all be it all do it all i find the word of low anthropology they're like oh wow yeah. i really thought i was the only one like right rj yes and what i hear you saying and i think is incredibly important right now especially is that intimacy is only built through vulnerability right oh, you yeah. will never you will never have a genuine friend in the world until you can actually share with them the truth of who you are and not just the bad stuff but the good stuff right all of it yeah. and that and is 100 <clears throat> you cannot argue with that you that can 100 and we true. live in such a lonely world such a lonely world like there's this um there's this animated uh youtube channel i subscribe to called kurzigacht what does that mean in german is that a german thing kurznacht kurzigacht kurgesagt Anyway, it's usually uh, like science stuff. It's usually kind of sci-fi, science, space, whatever. Their latest video was how to make friends. Like how do, how do, uh, how do, people, how do people make friends? And I was like, and it just spoke to, we're at a moment of extreme cultural 
loneliness coming. And we were lonely before because we're so hyper individualistic and we have to, you know, in order to be successful, one must project the image of success at all times, mm. you know, and wearing these masks. And then you layer the, the pandemic on top of that, where we've been isolated and interfacing with each other through screens. People are just really, really lonely. And so I think this word of low anthropology is a word of hope because it says, guess what? The, the way to make a friend is to be, to tell the truth is to be yourself, is to, is to stop pretending to be something that you're not, um, and just kind of let it all hang out, even though that's a little bit scary to do. It's not a little bit that, scary. It's a it, lot it's, scary it, to it's do. It's not only, but it's scary because it's not only where love happens, it's also where rejection happens. Yes, that's right. That's and, right. Um, but it is, uh, I, I believe that that's the whole thesis of the book, is that low anthropology, and by the way, when, when I say the word low anthropology, we're, an anthropology is an operating theory of human nature, and everyone has one. That's what uh, you'll hear me say in countless interviews. When you say, I'm only human, like, what does that mean? Everyone has some sense of it. It might not be completely, you know, conscious, but everyone has or one. consistent, yeah. And so a high anthropology says, basically, human beings are, are essentially good, and they're capable of enormous acts of charity and, 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 and goodness if they, and if, they can, if they can sort of be free of, of outside influence. And there's, it's not 100% wrong because that is, there's truth in that. But a low anthropology says that actually folks are more defined. What's more true about a person is their, um, or equally true, is that their, their fallibilities, their weakness, their limitations, their self-centeredness, their conflictedness. And so it's a comprehensive view of human nature. It doesn't say, you know, a high anthropology says a, the normal state of human life is uh, contentedness and sort of uh, happiness and kind of functioning. And a low anthropologist says, actually, it's just as normal to be full of doubt, to be grieving, and to be uh, afraid. <laughs> and that that's, you're not the only one. Again, it's not, you're not, it's not sort of abnormal, something to hide or to be totally right. ashamed of. And I, I really think it's unbelievably urgent. And, and because it, it is for the sake of love. And as Simeon always, uh, my brother Simeon says, like, Christianity just simply doesn't really make much sense outside of a low anthropology. Human, yeah. hu as human beings who need not only each other, but need God. Like, that's and if you're looking for a religion with high anthropology, they are out there. They're out there. Yeah. They tend not to be yeah. very merciful. I will say yeah. that because if people are good, then you better get your act together or else. And there are branches of Christianity that have higher anthropologies and they tend to say, not be very some, merciful. I know some joyless Christians, you know, that, that kind of live into that in that context until it eventually breaks them. Yeah. But yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, the reason I thought it was so important to write was be, because I like, I, not only can you connect with people on the level of experience and be like, yeah, hey, that is true. Cause like, how many times have we like read some article on here about the beauty of vulnerability mm. or, um, or weakness and like, mm -hmm. I, but it was always coming from secular writers and I was like, well, yeah. you know that this is like, uh, you know, this is spelled out in the, how the Bible understands human beings. It also says there's a moral dimension to it. Like my limitations also, you know, impact you, the people I live with. Like if you have, if I'm depressed, like the person who lives with that, it, it's not like neutral. It, it, it sucks. Right. You know, it's terrible. Right. There, there's fallout of these things. And I love that, that the faith acknowledges that. But it also, uh, it, it's a breeding ground. Low anthropology, I think, is a breeding ground for friendship and collaboration. And I'll stop trying to sell the book. But I, I, I do think it's, no, it's, I mean, it's I urgent. Think you're right. and, and forms of Christianity that don't, that are high anthropology or selectively high anthropology, say, you used to have not, you used to be a sinner and now you're sort of slightly less of one. Like, yeah. um, 
they produce uh, uh, just the worst kind of damage and deconstruction and deconversion and and even hate you know i i self-hatred actually genuine sort of alienation from the self so um that's why that's why i put all this time into it and that's why we talk about this so much on here and i i I sometimes feel when we hear from listeners who think you guys are sort of free to talk about anything and you don't take yourselves too seriously all that stuff you know they're the reason for that is dispositional, but it's also like theological. You know, we don't take ourselves yeah. that seriously, right? It's deeply theological. I mean, I always say to my students, like when I'm trying to describe our ministry, I say, you know, we take the gospel really seriously. We take uh, Jesus's love for us really seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. <laughs> we we up at the Renaissance Fair in the Waffle House, okay? I love like, the know, Renaissance so. Fair stories. I hope, are you going to go back I mean, in this year? I think that's important. So. And those two sure. things are directly linked. That, yeah. you know, th- those are intimately entwined, taking G- Jesus seriously, but not ourselves. We're yeah, justified by him and so. not justified by our own accomplishments or whatever. Yeah. And we're not, you know, we're not talking, about, we're not misanthropes either. <laughs> we don't, ha- we don't hate people. We, you know, I think we, we recognize that we're, people are flawed and we l- try to love them as they are because we're loved as we are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'm a person who's like, is, is absolutely in love with human ingenuity and art you know, in music and movies and, and it's incredible. But I also don't find art or uh, television that moving that doesn't sort of acknowledge the reality of who we are. Like in the stuff that really gets you underneath, that gets you crying, you know, that abreacting is always stuff that sort of in a beautiful way and it, it maybe even in an immaculately beautiful way exposes and reveals the depth of pain and uh, heartache that... Yeah that affects us all like that's these two things don't have to they're this they don't um they're not categorically opposed in any way i think that's part of what it's, the beauty of what being alive is yeah. we've been watching uh call the midwife which we didn't really watch when everyone watched it and we just saw the episode have you all watched that i've watched all? a little bit of season one because everyone loved it so much but i've not not I watched, watched that, a lot of it that yeah. amazing christmas episode <clears throat> that like blew. so i um so we saw the episode where the it's an older couple and she's pregnant and it's her second marriage and i think his i think it's both their second marriages but anyway what is clear when this baby is born is that she had a one night stand with a black man. Like immediately clear. The baby comes out and you're like, that is not a white baby. You hear like the and, screeching breaks in the background. Yeah. And you know, it's like the all these like, stops. nurses are like sort of tittering around like, Oh, how's this going to go? And the doctor sort of take, like goes out and has a cigar. Like he, like they kind of keep the, you know, the husband away mm-hmm. for a little while. Cause they're just not sure how this is going to go. And he walks in and she has this, and she, she just is, she's such a wonderful character because she has said to the nurses, like, we got married. I didn't really, know it was a good idea. I went out one night, you know, and I, I didn't realize what a wonderful person I had married then. And I know this now and, you know, and here we are. And, um, and the husband comes in and there's just pause and he just takes the baby and he's like, was there ever a more beautiful baby? And it's just, you know, it's that full recognition that she did something she shouldn't have. I mean, something that in most marriages would be, you know, irreparable damage. And he just, 
he just steps right into it. And there's this incredibly goofy scene where like, you know, it's all women. This, you know, we live in this era where dads have to go to all the appointments back then. It's all the women, you know, it's just the ladies all up in there sitting in fold out chairs in a church auditorium about to go back and get examined, whatever that meant then. And, you know, he's, it's the appointment to bring the baby for a checkup and he's got the pram and he's just proudly going through this like group of women and they're all commenting about how beautiful the baby is. And it's just, you know, it, it feels like, um, it just feels like so much grace to me and, and also so much acknowledgement of, you know, of low anthropology and of like people make mistakes and like the most miraculous thing, the most hopeful thing is that like we get scooped up and called the most beautiful baby and we get forgiven as the mother, you know, over and over again. Mm. So that's, that's the gospel. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, what is that's that's beautiful. I gotta rewatch that. I've, uh, it's so good. I was like ill prepared. Yeah, it was so good. After Jane's article the other day, I've, I'm I'm jumping into the bear, which it's sounds also, like also I, I know I've heard it's good. stressful, but also after what yeah. I read of Jane Grizzle's article on Mockingbird, uh, just highlighting the grace, um, just kind of killed me. Um, well, let's close with one final article that sort of hammers this home and, and, and from a slightly different perspective. It's called In Praise of Bewilderment by Alan Levinowitz. <clears throat> this in uh, the Hedgehog Review. Uh, he believes that bewilderment is sort of like a balm for our time, that it pierces through the insatiable demands of crisis to offer us a needed dose of humility and flexibility. This is what he writes. When you are worried, there is no time or energy to think about anything else. Certainty is easy. What food should I buy? The organic food or the cheaper food. When it comes to reducing cognitive load, the rule doesn't matter. What matters is having a rule to follow. So too for political issues or religious issues. Um, There's no room for ambiguity in our exhausted brains. Easier to let simple certainties do the work for us. I've struggled to come up with a metaphor for how bewilderment works in our culture and in ourselves. And unfortunately, the best I've got is a bit ridiculous. Bewilderment is like the lycra or spandex that clothing manufacturers have begun adding to fabrics like denim. Typically 100% cotton, denim can be inflexible and uncomfortable. By adding just 1-2% to elastine, uh, denim gets much more comfortable, more flexible, more resilient. Gain a bit of weight and you can still squat without ripping your pants. Without it, fabric is inflexible and more likely to tear. Bewilderment is not so much an attack on truth or orthodoxy, it's the same thing I'd say about low anthropology, as it is a call for smallness. Bewilderness, perplexity. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that we've lost, uh, he's, he's sort of praising bewilderment as a virtue. Uh, or as a, a gift. As a gift. Yeah. To not be 100% certain. And, you know, in the, frankly, I, this, this certainties, to feel like you're, 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 you're just in the middle of warring certainties is a very modern feeling. And um, to even suggest that you're not a 100% certain of any given stance is, a, um, is intolerable, impermissible. And yet at the same time, it's sometimes the difference between taking up arms and, and not, right? I was, I was just thinking, like, there is something about certainty and violence totally no one's more dangerous than somebody who's convinced they're right completely certain yeah i was gonna say i feel like um bewilderment was kind of 
a gift in ministry anyways of, of the pandemic. Mm. You know, it was so bewildering and confusing and uncertain that there was great freedom in that actually. Just to be like, no one really knows what to do, so we're just gonna try a few things and see what works, and if it works, great, and if it doesn't, like, no harm, no foul. Mm. You know, ministry during the pandemic felt a little bit, at least to me, like playing with house money. Mm. You know, it's like anything I do, people are gonna be grateful for. Whereas I do think now that we're, again, getting back to normal, um, it feels like the pressure is higher. It feels like there's more expectation to do things the way that they're supposed to be done or the way that we used to do them or to just expect people to show up at stuff. You know, during the pandemic, if anyone showed up at anything, it was like, oh my, look at these people. There's like 50 (laughs) people here. This is crazy. You know, whereas Mm. now you like expect people to show up and if, you know, and if they don't, um, then it's going to feel like more of a, more of a failure or something. I mean, how often are we bewildered about what God is just doing in our lives individually though? Yeah, we have no idea. how, why why is this happening? What, what, I mean, or or do I get even a, a chance to understand this? Sarah, what do you think about bewilderment? I guess I was just thinking about like how much bewilderment there is in scripture. Like the it feels like every time people encounter God, they're like totally bewildered, right? And every certain thing that they knew is shifted, and um, you know, it it's just it's it's an unmooring. Mm. And, um, this is so funny and like embarrassing. Um, but when we were in Las Vegas, uh, I mean, there's a a lot of just really stupid stores there. Um, (laughs) what's uh, coming, but, but we went, but we went in some, I don't know. We went in some store and I found this bracelet that I bought that says expect miracles. And, you know, I think, miracles or bewilderment in some ways, you know, because they just, um, those two things are so intertwined for me. You know, it's also like this idea of like Christians as like expecting whimsy or something, you know, it's, 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 um, not knowing what lies ahead of us, not knowing how we're going to wake up feeling, not knowing what sins we're going to commit that day. Um, and, and putting our trust someplace else, someplace that is like, you know, dare I say it, like kind of fun. Like, I mean, I love when I have those days, I'm like, what is God doing? You know, um, and there's something really beautiful about that. And even like, I would say even in the face of great tragedy to have, you know, I'm, I'm certainly thinking about my parents, but, and I feel like we haven't talked about this. I have to say, I feel badly that we've not talked about this. We've not talked about the fact that Chad Bird lost his son. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My dear friend, and Luke. Luke. Luke died. And um, tragically, suddenly, you know, accidentally, just horrible. And, you know, Chad has been one of those people that's that's um, processed his grief out loud, which, you know, do, do grief the way you want to. I actually think it's really helpful for you to do that. It's also just such a gift for people to see you process grief in a really open way. And, you know, he, I get, I see him be bewildered, you know, like when, um, you know, his son was in super prestigious military Academy. And like when they came back, um, this fall, like there's a 
you know, there's a sign up um, to, to remember his son and, you know, the stories he's gotten to hear from people, you know, that he didn't even know these things. And, you know, I have those, I had that experience with mom and dad and, you know, I just, I welcome bewilderment. I mean, I think sometimes it, it's, it comes as like a mercy yeah. um, in the midst of tragedy. So yeah, but we don't live in a world that, you know, that wants it. So, and, and it's, I, I'm fascinated y'all by this idea. I don't know. I, I'm trying to figure out what the, the writer's saying. Like we don't really have space for it because crisis takes up so much of our brains. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, we, we yeah. have to rule out. It's partly a symptom of, of uh, overloaded uh, schedules and yeah. life. So there's just, no that's why we go to certainty to... instead of bewilderment. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to make me rethink about like when I have to answer these definitive questions and to just be like, I don't know, you know, like, what do you think? Cause I, I, that's so much more interesting to me sometimes than certainty. And I mean, certainty to go back to the earlier article, certainty feels a lot more moral and bewilderment. Totally. Admitting bewilderment feels um, like, like failure or laziness or something like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about it. Um, that to be like an undecided voter or something like that. <laughs> think like, what's wrong with you? Who, I mean, it used to be like, it doesn't signal to people, oh, I'm open-minded. I'm just processing. It just says like, oh, you've right. got no courage or you're weak or something like that. There, it's been moralized deeply bewilderment. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how this works at UVA, but at Rice, you know, it's a prestigious school and students generally show up with their major like printed on their forehead. Yeah. Like they know exactly what they're going to major in. And we did not have that at Ole Miss. And, you know, occasionally I will have a student come through. I have like two right now who are undeclared. And the party that I throw verbally that I don't mean to every time they tell me this, I'm like, you're the next contestant on, you're the most amazing student we have in this group. I can't believe you haven't picked a major. This is amazing. I, I, because I'm the exact same way, Sarah. It's amazing. Like, I'm like, you this telling is me so you awesome. Haven't figured, you don't know when you're 17 you what you're going to do up. with the rest of your life? This is great. Or you're at least willing you know? to admit that? Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Praise God. I know. I know. Well, so. I, I always think about it. Be bewilderment is like perplexity. You know, we're perplexed but not driven to despair because it, it does it does point. It at least illuminates the bewilderment of the center of the Christian faith, which is sort of how could how could that happen? How could how could Jesus how could be, be crucified? How could how could this be the Son of God? You know, like um, and uh, if that is the path that God takes in the world, then he does follow the path of bewilderment um and that may be cold comfort at certain times but at other times i found it to be very very consoling um i mean jesus himself is you know seems when he's hanging on that cross slightly bewildered you know or or yeah. may, maybe or like certainly his followers are bewildered you know and and yeah. and um I, I i find that to be almost like a holy bewilderment that sounds a little silly but I know yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah there's a guy you know my Thursday morning men's Bible study which I love one of the guys in there was talking about a friend of his who said he's the most holy man I know and he lays tile for a living like in bathrooms and kitchens and stuff and he said this man's attitude towards life is he wakes up there every day and he says okay God like what are we doing today what are we do what, what do you what do you got in store you know how mm -hmm. what what how are we gonna figure things out you know, and uh, and that seems like a, a an approach to life that feels free, mm. that feels sort of open to bewilderment, feels open to the presence of God, is not about control or crisis management. 
know, yeah. sometimes, I mean, yeah. I'm sure he doesn't always feel that way. Some, whoo, sometimes. So, well, I was just thinking like, I feel like when I talk to God, I've like literally out loud yesterday was like, okay, Lord, you got to get me through this. I mean, sometimes yeah. we can call on God. We need crisis management, mm-hmm. you know, we but, do. um, but there's also a certain amount of like admitting bewilderment. Yeah. And there. knowing he's in it, he's not, he's not yeah. bewildered. He's not up there yeah. being like, you know, I'm really counting on Sarah to figure this out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, low anthropology yet again. No, no, uh, he's, yeah. he's just, he's just fine. And he's throwing us curveballs for our own good. Apparently. Apparently. So, yeah. what, what, yeah. Maybe we'll remain bewildered until the, until the day we die. But I think it's a, it's a it's a position of humility is what this what this man's it saying is. and freedom and humility and freedom is is not a bad place to live even if it, it if even if it means sacrificing some certainty yeah um because that also means sacrificing certainty about yourself by the way and like who yeah. of us is like afraid that of the certainty that maybe they're, they're not who they'd like to be. I mean, that's, yeah. isn't that, that they're unlovable, you know, that, that's that, cause that, that, that per- bewilderment applies to you. Like, are you bewildered that God could love someone like you? Well, then you probably are under slight start, starting to understand it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, well, thank you. The two of you. Thanks for, thanks for the words of affirmation. Um, of the book is available, you know, final plug here. It's available. Buy it. It's oh the, uh, the thing people can do is not just buy it, review it. Like that's how these algorithms work. Unfortunately, yeah. just on Goodreads or Amazon or wherever you buy books, give it a review. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I we'll just be appreciative and maybe throw some words of affirmation back at you. <laughs> um, all right, that's all we got. Bye, 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 bye. Bye. See bye, you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.